The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. The scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back of the pew, you'll find that on page 774. And if you do not own a Bible, please feel free to take one as a gift from Park Church. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Quinn. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see you all. Yeah, it's, it's really good to, to be back. Some of you are probably like, who, who is that guy that just walked up to uh, the pulpit? Um, my name is Neil, one of the pastors here, and you all, Park Church, gave my family and I uh, a sweet gift over the summer of sabbatical. Uh, we had three months to, to just rest and to be. Um, now we have two young boys, so not everything is, you know, pure rest. It's not a perfect science. Um, but I mean, our philosophy on sabbaticals is not go do a writing project or work something. There's, there's goodness in that type. For us, it's go be human and go spend time with people um, that you love and uh, be with family, be with friends, uh, travel a little bit. And, and we were able to do all those things. Um, so thank you. Uh, it was such a a sweet gift for us. We, we, we came to the tail end and we just kind of looked at each other like, we're, we're ready to go back. We're ready to step back in, um, and which, which shows just the, the refreshment that we were offered 
over the summer. And, and this, this is home. You know, Hannah, Hannah mentioned it earlier. This is like, man, being away, we weren't worshiping here on Sundays for the summer. And being back, it's like, oh, this is a, a sense of, of home. And yeah, just love each of you. Love this, this church. Uh, so thank you. Thanks on behalf of my family. And it's, it's really good to be back with you guys. All right, let me pray for us. And then we'll get into uh, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Father, thank you for your kindness. Uh, thank you for uh, the kind of love that you have for us that is persevering, uh, that, that is pursuing, or that, that is able to see and take in um, all that is there, all, all of, all of the, the confusion, the brokenness, the hurt, the doubt, the rebellion, the suffering. You see all of that, and you're able to, to be with us and, and you don't shrink back. You don't kind of cross your arms and, and wait for us to, to do better, be better, but you, you press in, you lean in, and you're, you're attentive. Uh, so please help us by, by your spirit to hear your voice, your voice of invitation, your voice of, of tenderness, your voice of conviction, and your voice that would, would beckon us to receive your mercy afresh, maybe for the first time to receive it in such a way that it, we're able to, to live in the world as it is and see you in the midst of it, to experience healing, uh, to walk with you, and to be those who, who live as true sons and daughters of God our Father and our King. Now, so please help us now toward that end. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am a Midwest boy, been here for over a decade, but the Indiana, rural Indiana roots, they're just like, they're deep in me. And so when my wife and I moved out here a while back for me to go to grad school, and she was my, I mean, she'll tell you, she was my sugar mama for about three years. Covenantally bound, uh, mutually sacrificial, like living into the fullness of God's goodness for marriage, sugar mama uh, for my time in seminary. And, it, but there was still something in me. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm sitting around, I'm studying, I'm reading books, this is really good work. And I need to go do something. I need to, like, go produce something. And those are things I'm working on with my counselor still. But there's still, like, this impulse. Like, I got to go produce. I got to go do. And so the first summer rolled around after my first year. And I was like, I got to string together some, some part-time jobs, something. And bumped into this guy who had a friend coming up from Arkansas with a team of people that were coming into a, a, a food plant here in Denver. And he said, hey, would you like to, he probably saw me as, like, ripe for the picking you know, the seminary student kind of eager for something. And he's like, hey, uh, they're going to they're gonna hang four by 12, very heavy, very large, very expensive, very nice, but very heavy plaster boards inside of this food plant in Denver. And they're looking for more, you know, kind of hourly workers to, to come in. Pay was decent, actually more than decent of what I could find elsewhere. I was like, I'm in. Got a little construction background with my dad growing up and doing some things. Like, all right, this is, this is what I'm looking for. Now, brought, um, well, I did find out pretty quickly it wasn't just any food plants, and it wasn't food for humans. Um, it was one that you probably know by smell when cutting across I-70. Um, as the... They recently showed up in an article called What Smells Where in Denver. Uh, the Purina puppy chow plant was where I was employed for uh, part of that summer. 
And I, I, I brought another friend into it. He was looking for work, didn't have construction background. I was like, hey, we'll go pick out our steel-toed boots together. And he was down a car. So I'm like, hey, I'll get up earlier, come pick you up. So we're doing this thing. I'm trying to coach him through. How do we, you know, hold the different tools and whatever else? And I was, I was loving it. I was like, yeah, it's early mornings, long days, but felt satisfied. Felt like I was contributing and doing some decent work. And then casually, my friend uh, had mentioned, I think it was on one of our drives up for the day, early in the morning, he mentioned how much he was getting paid per hour for the same job we were doing. And it happened to be $2 more an hour than what I was making. And all of a sudden, all the joy, all the satisfaction just evaporated out of my soul. And I was like, what is happening inside of me? Like so much inside of me was just screaming, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I, I wanted to be happy for him, but it was hard to be. It's like, what is going on inside of me? And I think what my heart demonstrated in that moment is just how, how much the idea of the, the meritocracy, that things are merited, that we earn our way full stop, like that had sunk its teeth into my soul. Now, truth be told, um, understanding what it, well, first let's define it. What do we mean by meritocracy? Sociologist uh, Ashley Crossman, she defines it this way. Meritocracy is a social system in which success and status in life depend primarily on individual talents, abilities, and effort. It is a social system in which people advance on the basis of their merits. Now, truth be told, there's a lot of goodness and validity to understanding the world through Merits. Uh, a month ago, we had to take my two-year-old into the hospital for a few nights with a, a respiratory issue. And totally fine now, but you know, kind of a, a scary couple days. Um, you better believe when doctors and nurses and technicians and everyone else is coming in, I'm a firm believer and defender of the meritocracy. Like, I don't want medical schools just giving out medical degrees because they were, they were feeling particularly, you know, kind that day. It's like, ah, oh, you get a degree and you get a degree and you get, it's like, no, I want someone who is trained, who has earned, who has invested the time and the energy to get to that point where they're going to, they're going to help us discern what's going on and to, um, to get him better. But there's something that a strict meritocracy has no room for, no conceptual or practical room for, and that's grace. That's a, a lavish generosity. And this is what was, was bugging me, what was going on inside of me. I'm like, something is off. Like, sure, I felt like I could make a case why I, sh why I should be making the same amount or more than my friend, and, and yet here I was, I'm like, something is off about what's going on. Am I... Uh, my wife, Erin, she reminded me this past week, she's like, oh, if you remember a few days after this happened, uh, I was apparently, you know, just reading, we were going through something together, I was on my own, and, and came to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, and I, I brought it out to her, and I was like, this, like, this is, this is exposing my heart, this is what's going on right here, I need to do some work here, this is the reality of my soul. And so, Jesus tells a story. He tells this parable that, that is fairly similar uh, to, to what I walked through. He's, it's designed to, to kind of draw out in us this intuitive sense of injustice, of kind of like, hey, that, that's not quite right. Like, why, why, why do I sense that this is not right? So let's look at it together. Matthew 20, um, starting verse 1, and if you've closed your Bibles, I invite you to, to open it back up. We'll work our way through this passage and 
and see um, what we find together. So Matthew 20, that very first word in verse 1, 4. You should always pay attention to the fours and therefores in Scripture. Um, here Jesus is, is pointing back to what has just come. Uh, what he's about to tell, what he's about to teach, what he's about to say is emerging from what came just before. What came just before? So what we looked at last week with Gary, you've got this you know, rich young guy who's pretty status-driven, has a fair amount of means, and it's kind of like, hey, okay, what do I have to do to be good enough to inherit eternal life? And Jesus seems to kind of play the game for, with him for a little bit. And then he goes for the jugular. So I'm going I'm to ask you to do, I'm going to call you to do the very thing that will expose how your heart is unwilling to worship God before anything else. Give up all your wealth. But Jesus was able to see into this man's soul and to know what his life was oriented around and say, well, give that up. He couldn't do it, at least at that point. And so he walks away, sad. But then Peter and the other disciples are kind of like, well, that's what we did. We, we kind of did that. We, we gave up our livelihood. We gave up our comfort. We gave up so much in order to follow you. And Jesus says, yeah, uh, that's recognized. That will be rewarded. But... But follower of Jesus, beware that we do not turn the very means by which we are sacrificing or giving of ourselves or seeking to follow Jesus, that we turn that very good thing into another means of earning, another means of performing, another means of of being enough and being far enough along and kind of uh, in comparison to other people, look where we've arrived, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished, look how I'm good enough in front of other people and ultimately in front of God himself. And so he turns to this parable. Now, perhaps Jesus' most uh, beloved form of teaching, the parable, the story that, that is designed to, to kind of catch us up within it. And we're like identifying with different characters and siding with different characters. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're so caught within it, the, the conviction slides in from the back door. We're like, ooh, hold on a second. I think I'm, I might be the bad guy. Like, I, I might not be the one that I'm supposed to be in this case. Um, One author has said that a parable is designed to be a mirror and then a window. A mirror upon which we can see ourselves more clearly. Like God will will shine a light upon our lives. We say, okay, this is is me. This is where I am. And then then a, a window in order to see the grace of God that comes to us in these places through the person and work of Jesus. So I want that to be a mirror and a window for us this morning. Continue on, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus saying, hey, you know, biblical imagery from all the way with Israel, this is, this is what life under God's good reign looks like. Uh, not just through lip service, not just through kind of showing up in different spaces in certain ways, but when God is ruler of our lives and we received his love and we orient our lives in practice around who he is, this is what the kingdom of heaven experience begins to look like. So the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. And here this is depicting God the Father in the story. The master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This would be common practice. So you got a, a wealthy landowner, uh, got a vineyard or fields, and it's harvest time. It's like, all right, we, got, we need to, to get some people to, to work it. Can't do it on my own. Can't just do it with my family. And so you would have a, a large group of people who would gather at the marketplace, day laborers. Um, you know, this is, it was a very hand-to-mouth society for many people. So they're showing up in the, the midst of the, the town, and it's like, hey, hire me. 
Um, I want to earn enough money so I can have food to eat and a way to provide for my family the next day. So he'd show up and the master would then say, okay, you, you, you and you, let's go, let's get to work. Uh, We've got a full day of labor in front of us. Verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, which would be normal day wage, again, hand-to-mouth society, it's very just, very normal, what, what could be expected. For a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the first up to the last. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. All right, so what's going on here? Well, the the master of the house, he gets first batch of workers um, there early in the morning, the start of the day, it's going to be about 6 a.m., and whether he just didn't think through the work well enough, and he's like, I got to get some more laborers, Um, or it's like, I want to get, the time crunch is is increased, I want to get a little bit more done a little bit more quickly, let's go get some more laborers, Um, or possibly just out of the, the generosity of his heart. It was like, there are more people that are waiting for work. I'm going to bring them in as well and, and pay them too. But whatever the, the, the rationale is, goes out at third hour, 9 a.m., goes out at noon, goes out at 3 p.m., and then goes out at the 11th hour, which is about 5 p.m., one hour left in the workday, which would end at 6. They all come, and they're all doing the same type of work, for, but for very different amounts of time. And then he calls, tells the foreman, he's like, all right, gather them together, line them up, and pay the last first. That, that, that's the first thing that should signal, hey, something is different in what's going on. That, that's not to be expected. That's not how things would normally operate. And normally, the first ones that, to come to work, they're going to be the first ones to get paid and to be sent on their way. But here, the last ones get paid first. And we see, we begin to see some of the the generosity of this master. They weren't told, and they didn't agree upon how much they would make. Um, They they probably imagined they weren't going to make very much, uh, some fraction of what, you know, a normal day's wage would be. They were just thankful for some type of employment. But here you see the lavish kindness and generosity of the master and saying, you're going to get a full day's wage. You came at the very end, did a little bit of work. Full day's wage. Well, those who came first and worked a grueling 12 hours, they're, they're seeing that and saying, this is great. Yeah, we agreed upon a, a denarius, but if they're getting a denarius, clearly this guy has means. Like, he, he has the ability and the desire to give us more than what we've agreed to. That's what we're going to expect. And so we see that in verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They were shocked. 
They were angry. They felt a sense of injustice, that it was unfair. It's like clearly we've earned more if they did a denarius worth of labor. We've done 12 times as much. And here's where the dialogue slows down uh, because it's the, the focus of the story. And I want to linger for a minute on this phrase that they, they say in verse 12. These last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us. You've made them equal to us. So revealing of where their, their heart is. And I think this is, this is we see something of, of how God works with us. He, the master did not need to, to pay the last first. And he could imagine what would be drawn out of the hearts of those first early workers that came in. It's like they're going to they're see the payment, they're going to feel a sense of injustice, and they're going to be pretty angry about that, pretty irate. How often is this the way that God works with us? How often does God give us a particular relationship, a particular season, a particular uh, work environment, a particular type of suffering or difficulty? designed to draw something out in us, to shine a light on something that's going on beneath the surface that we often don't pay attention to, in His kindness, in His mercy, in His love, saying, I want that to come out. I want that to come to the, to the foreground so we can, we can talk about that. We can do something about it. We can pay attention over here because He wants to draw us into the sweetness of repentance to find life with Him. So as we consider, like, where, where has God done that with us? Like, where is He kind of put us in this situation where it's like, ah, if I could just avoid that, I wouldn't have to feel these things. I wouldn't have to, to experience and be frustrated by, and like that, that annoying person, like the way they treat me, and this. Yes, there are considerations there, but let us also consider what God might be doing in His kindness, in His precision, and that the way that, that God fathers us. I found in my own life that oftentimes um, I won't pay attention the first time around, or the second, or the third. And he cycles back. He gives another relationship, another conversation, another season of life where it's like, okay, maybe now, maybe now I'll begin to press in. Maybe now I'll begin to, to listen and to say there's enough disruption that I can walk with you more intimately. But that's what's going on with him. This is being drawn out for them. And it, it, it's, they just say it. We're, we think we're better than them. We think we've done more. We have done more. We've endured a lot more and we should be paid more. They're not equal with us. How often is that our heart? How often do we, without even realizing it, the way we respond to people in situations, we think, but I'm, I'm actually superior. Or at least I should be. They're getting better treatment and things are going better for them. I actually should be in that place. I should be receiving those things. Things should be better for me than they are for them. I had a friend one time challenge me to make a list of the people that I judge. I was like, well, I don't judge people. And I just considered how when I drive on the road, take I-25 a fair amount. Actually, another friend said, we, we tend to think those who go faster than us are maniacs, and those who go slower are idiots. <laughs> we become the standard. At least in our own minds, like I, everything is kind of relative to me, and somehow I want to frame it as I'm being, I'm better than the rest of the drivers. And it's like, how much... How much is how we drive a window into our heart more broadly and how we relate to people? There's one to sit with on the drive home or the commute tomorrow. We, we do this instinctively. We're, we're sizing ourselves up against other people and where are they and how am I better and who, what do they think and how, what are their convictions on this and what decisions do they make? 
You have made them equal to us, and they're so frustrated by that, so angry. Let's take it a slightly different route. What labor, what work that we have done, or the things that we invest, kind of give our lives to, do we assume makes us better or should put us in a better situation than the next person, the people that we often compare ourselves to? Let's consider some of those. Now, maybe you're, maybe you're an entrepreneur. Like, ah, I've, I've done the education, the schooling, I've got the accreditation, like I've, I've launched into this business. And I've seen some level of success and whatever else, but I, but I see someone else I graduated with. Or I see another person who's started their business at about the same time, or even less time than me, and it's going better for them. I, I should be in that place. I should be receiving these benefits. I, I, I've, I've done enough. I've done more than them. I should be in a better position. Or maybe it's work ethic more broadly. Uh, your friend at work gets the promotion or a better salary increase. You're like, I've been here longer. Uh, my expertise is greater. I should be valued more. Can't you see the things that I've worked on and the things that I've done? Maybe we compare other people and their kind of how far along they are in their careers compared to ourselves. We say, ah, but I've, I've been faithful. I've invested. I've, I've tried to. I've shown up. And things seem to be going better over there. I, I think I'm better, but they're actually receiving the benefits. Maybe you're in retirement. And the, the comparison game of, I thought my retirement would look different. I see other friends who retired uh, before or after me, but it's like we're, we're not in the same state. You know, the, the markets have been tough. Um, we're not in the same place financially as I'd assume, but, but I've invested so much for decades, like given myself over, and I, I imagine a different type of life than where I am. Maybe it's more relational. Uh, maybe there's, there's a longing for marriage. Say, oh, but I've... I've done all that I can to, to seek to be a good future husband or a good future wife. And somehow, somehow I'm the one who's always in the wedding, but not standing at the very center. Now, how many friends that I've, I've walked through that the pain of, yes, longing to celebrate, longing to celebrate what's going on in others' lives. But it's like, ah, keep on sending out the next friend, the next roommate uh, to, go, to go get married. It's like, yes, I, I care and I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And there's a, there's a longing there for it. And then deep down, it's like, but I've, haven't I done enough? Haven't I been enough? Haven't I given myself over? What, why is it not me? Why not me? Maybe for you, it's a longing for children. Um, this is my wife and I for uh, a couple years, walking through infertility, not understanding why. There was no clear reason at all, uh, why we weren't able to, to get pregnant and, and have a child. But, but seeing our, our friends and family members, you know, have multiple children and like, yes, we celebrate. Yes, we're so excited. And God, don't you hear that we seek to be faithful parents? Like we want to disciple and raise up and, and send out into the world those who would follow you and love you. And, and what, what's, what, what's, what's amiss here? We long for this. Haven't we done enough? Maybe it's comparison between families. I think parents more broadly, but I think there's a particular, I've heard and at times witnessed uh, the mom comparison that can take place. I'm like, all right, what, what decision do you make with work after the child comes? Is it part-time, stay full-time, do you daycare, do you not? How do you feed, do you stay home? All the different questions about how, how do you discipline? What do you do with schooling? 
Where are your kids now? How do they respond? Are they, are they obedient? Are they following Jesus? We step into these comparison games and thinking like, have I not given enough? Have I not labored enough to, to, to give me this type of benefit, this type of fruit for my labor? Or maybe as a student, it's grade comparison. Singing, well, I've, I've put in the time. Why are my grades not better compared to this person who sleeps through half, half the classes? Or maybe on the flip side, like I, I've, I'm actually doing it. I look down at other people because I, I put in the time and the grades are really good. I think more broadly, there's this comparison of lifestyle. You know, constantly looking to the next person. And we have this, this persistent window into the lives of other people, like a partial window through social media, which social media has its place, but oh, how it, it works over our souls where we're constantly, almost constantly, finding these anchor points of like, how do I size up here? Am I better? Am I worse? Am I better off? I don't know, but haven't I done enough? Should I be valued more? Shouldn't God favor me a little bit more like I'm seeing in this other person and their filtered viewpoint that they're projecting to the world? Comparison game is pervasive. Maybe it's in politics and the convictions that we hold. Now, how, how often do we find ourselves or hear from other people? It's like, well... I care about this issue over here. I care about the poor. I care about racial justice, or I care about the economy, or I care about history. I care about thinking rationally. I think about uh, investing in community. I care about uh, electing certain types of candidates um, that will care about these types of things. They have a certain type of character. And then what we do is we turn that into a game of superiority and say, well, therefore, I'm better than the other people. And they're inferior to me. Not, not wondering if maybe there's something to learn. Maybe there's a, another perspective that could fill out mine, that could tweak mine, that could challenge mine. They've helped me to see more fully, but instead we'll, we'll demonize and we'll, we'll turn into this game of comparison and then separate ourselves and get sucked into these echo chambers. The games of comparison. We do this in our spiritual lives. Well, I'm not as committed as that person. I don't serve as much, or I serve more. I'm more committed. I fast, I pray, I read the Bible. I lead, I do these things. Should my life be better? Aren't I a more noble Christian? Or as a church, we can kind of have a sense of a, of a church, like we're, we're the ones who care about mission or the Bible, or we're like gospel-centered, or we're able to do you know, theological retrieval and bring it into the present day, or we're, we're the ones that, that do the thing that people are drawn into. How pervasive it is that we compare ourselves to one another. I think deep down, we all long to be approved of, and we're terrified of being devalued, terrified of it. It's almost as if we have these, these antenna up constantly of like what somebody might say or think or assume, and yes, people genuinely do things that are harmful and hurtful, but we're, we're often very prone to just be like, ah, I don't want to be devalued. I want to recognize that there's worth. I want to be approved of, and I want the goodness of God to pour forth in my life. Well, how does the master address this situation? Look at me in verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend. Now, friend is, um, that's a, it's a cordial, kind term, but it's also a little bit of a rebuking type term as well. It's like, hey, if you read through Matthew, uh, the, the way that it's used again and again, it's kind of like, hey, you're presuming upon grace. You need to, to, to listen up. Yes, kind, but also wake up. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Be satisfied. Be satisfied with what's been given. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? Another way to translate that is, is your eye evil because I'm good? And the eye, understood, is kind of this window into the soul. To be able to see what, what drives a human. What are they oriented around? What do they care most about? You know, what we look at, how you can read people's eyes. I mean, so much comes back and forth through the eyes in a literal way, but it's also how it's used as a metaphor. The master is saying, I, I just poured out generosity. I just poured out my goodness. Did my goodness draw out evil in you? When you came into contact with my generosity, did it draw out the, the evil that's residing within your heart? This is where I think we, we need to consider the game of comparison that we often find ourselves in. Uh, oftentimes we'll find that anchor point. How do, I, how do I size up compared to that group of people, this individual over there? And the currency, the, the way that we trade within the game of comparison is one of the seven deadly sins, envy. Envy. Um, how do we understand what envy is? Well, Thomas Aquinas defined it very simply as sadness at the good of another. Sadness at the good of another. Another author, Victor Clark, he, he said it this way, when good things happen to another person, envy is asking the question, why not me? Why not me? You know, it's this longing for us to, to have the good things that we see in other people that we, we may be satisfied apart from the comparison, but once we're in contact with others, once we see others, then the dissatisfaction and the frustration begins. And the way we often respond is in line with what Dorothy Sayers has said, envy is the great leveler. If it can't level things up, it will level things down. We don't like people being better than us. Some cultures will, will call this uh, tall poppy syndrome. It's like, oh, if, if, if someone is achieving or is successful or things are going well for them, we gotta, we gotta cut that flower down. If it's growing above the rest, bring it down. If I can't rise up with you, I need to cut it down, even if we do that within our own hearts, trying to tear down why would people receive or why they don't deserve the things that they have received. Envy is private, lonely, and miserable. As one author said, envy is no fun at any time, ever. And yet we're all prey to it. We all give ourselves over to envy within the game of comparison, constantly, the back and forth. And maybe we find ourselves less identifying with the group that is superior. Maybe we, we feel more like the late arrivals, the people that work just that last hour. You know, the word that's, that's translated here, um, it's translated as idle. And that could be a little bit pejorative, like, oh, they're just being lazy and they, they didn't show up for work on time, which is possible, could have been. Uh, it's also perhaps more likely that these were the ones who had their own field to tend for a little while. And they're like, I, I need to make a little bit more money. I've got one last hour. Maybe I can make some more money. Or it's possible that these are the ones that showed up at 6 a.m. They showed up maybe even earlier than the rest, but they were overlooked. They weren't desirable enough. They were the type of employees that the employers wanted. And so they were marginalized. They were forgotten. They were ignored. They were neglected. And so there they were at the end of the day. Where is this us? 
Where do we feel neglected? Where do we feel outcast? Where do we feel like we're not the ones who have what it takes? Everyone else seems to be doing okay, at least from what we can see and what we can hear. But on the inside, we're, we're wondering if we have what it takes, if anyone would ever approve of us, if anyone would truly invite us in. There's a number of years ago that I, I began to realize, and I, I, I used to think I, I probably identified more with that, that early laborer group. It's like, all right, here are the things that I can offer. Here's what I can achieve. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can invest. I, I can go accomplish these things. And this endless game of comparison and trying to perform and to be enough and to present something to the world, it's exhausting. But a handful of years ago, I began to realize maybe I'd feel a little bit more like the later rivals. Feel a gnawing sense of inadequacy. Feeling like I'm, I'll never really measure up. Feeling like I, I don't really have something to offer. And so then seeking to overcompensate for that by acting like the early laborer. Oh, I do. Here is something really good. Now, here's what I can do. Here's how I can, I can invest myself well enough and look what I've accomplished. And honestly, I think this is all of us. I think we carry both of these inside of us to varying degrees and in different ways, but feeling a sense of lack, of inadequacy, of wanting to be valued and approved of, but feeling like we have to constantly fight to be enough, to, to make up for that deficit. So we carry around both of these, and here's what I want us to see. The way of God's kingdom is summed up in verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. This actually kind of brackets this story, because if you go back to verse 30 of chapter 19, you have the same line, slightly different, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the kingdom principle, the upside-down kingdom principle. That God in Christ takes the things that are forgotten, that are marginalized, that are weak, that are despised, that are uncared for, that are neglected, and he says, I, I invite you in. I invite you in. We see this by the master. He doesn't just go at 6 a.m. The people are like, hey, I'm, I'm ready for work. He goes, three hours later, I'm inviting more in. Three hours later, I'm inviting more in. Three more hours later, I'm inviting more in. Up to the 11th hour, right before the end of the day, if you would come, come. Labor in my field. Come work my vineyard. Take on my burden, my yoke. They're easy and they're light. They fit. This is what you're designed for as a human. Come, labor in my vineyard of grace. This is where life is found. So God in Christ, he, he flips the expectations on their head. He flips a meritocracy on its head. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the one who came. I'm the one who came and actually earned and merited everything that we should have that we failed to do, the places where we're sucked into the envy and the games of comparison, where we just can't seem to escape it. We don't even realize how much we're, we're into it, that he lived it perfectly. He was able to celebrate the goodness of God wherever it was found, that he was able to embody and become excited with those that experienced God's lavish goodness upon them. This is the way of Christ's kingdom. And he invites us, he invites us to, to drink deeply of it and to receive the invitation into it. And so maybe you, you feel like you're, you're just exhausted by the, the comparison game, trying to do more, accomplish more, and it, it's hard for you to celebrate the, the good things that come to other people because you're just like, well, that should be me, I, I've done enough. Or maybe it's difficult for you for different reasons. 
It's like, I, I, I don't have what it takes and I'm, I've all but given up. Or I feel like I can't give up, but I, in some ways I'm, I want to. What does it look like to hear the invitation to walk in the goodness of this vision? To live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven where God reigns beautifully, that he gives us the goodness of his love, of his pursuit, of his presence. And he says, I will satisfy every desire, every need, probably not in the way that you expect, but I will satisfy you with myself. Stick around for it. And then when we see other people experience God's generosity, because he sovereignly decided to give them good gifts that he didn't give to us, the things feel off, they feel a little bit unjust, but we, we, we're able to say, God is good. God is good because he gives good gifts and I see it in your life. Wow, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Yes, I still long for it, but I'm thankful for what you're receiving. I heard recently a definition of, of humility could be that we, we celebrate the good that others do and receive as if it was our own. We're able to get behind it. Yes, fighting, fighting for the genuineness in it, but we're leaning into it and saying, this is the way of God's invitational kingdom who says, come, wherever you are, wherever you are. You feel like you've been looked over, passed over, ignored, failed too much. You didn't listen to the invitation earlier. He welcomes you to come in. So may we be, as a church, as gospel communities, as those who step out into our workplaces, our families, our neighborhoods, those who receive the lavish generosity of God, and then celebrate it wherever we find it. Living free of the game of comparison, living free of envy, this is the way of Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, your, your goodness is so, it's so real, and it's so pursuing, and it's so unfading. And I just ask that we would taste and see a little bit more of that goodness, a little bit more of who you are. Uh, where the, the darkness feels thick for those in this room, where the discouragement just seems like it's just beating up against their life again and again and again. They give each of us ears to, to hear your invitation. Just a spiritual eyes that, that recognize your goodness, to see where it's come in our own lives, to see where it's come out in the world and others' lives, and to be freed up into this sweet labor in the vineyard of grace. We long for that. We want that. And it doesn't come apart from your work in our lives. And so we invite you in to do that even now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.